when we uh, take up Psalm 22, uh, when you read through the Psalms, there are many Psalms with messianic elements. That phrase means many Psalms that point to Christ. There, there will be things in them that prophesy specifically his words, his deeds, his action, his being, his power. The Psalms are rich with those pointers to the person of Christ. And I'm sure you've seen it many times. But realistically, if there's any Psalm that does this most repeatedly, most directly concerning his death and resurrection than any other, it is Psalm 22. The, the specifics in that Psalm over and over again should just cause us to sit back and be absolutely astounded. Note this. This is written approximately a thousand years before Jesus came in the flesh. The, now some might say, well, the words that he's going to say is because he knew them. That's why he took them up. I tell you, what we see in the psalm is not just him taking up the words that were spoken that he would say. But his enemies, his deriders, his attackers, those who hate him, don't even realize that they are mimicking the very words that God said they would say to him. And brothers and sisters, one of the rich things about that is we get to sit back and sometimes people don't get this. Whatever God says... It proves to be true. It, it, the prophecies he, he gave in the past, they always reveal themselves in the course of time. And there are yet some, as we stand here today, those promises and prophecies in God's word that are pending, that are yet to come. As surely as he came and died and rose again and ascended, and reigns at the right hand of the Father. So surely he will return for his own. And he's coming again. It's not a doubt. It's not a leap of faith. To think otherwise is a lack of sense. Because of the darkness and ignorance that is upon man. Because of the hardness of our, of our hearts. Because of the fallen Adam. But oh, the riches of his word. And so we glory in this. We don't gather together as some like to say throughout the world. Okay, this is Easter Sunday. They like to say a term which sadly is linked to all kinds of uh, historic pagan practices. And then they refer to this as a, a Christian holiday or a Christian sacred day. As if every religion has their own sacred days of equal value, etc. Nonsense. Absolutely not. Jesus truly came. That's why we celebrate at Christmas. It may not be the actual day. Even though as today might not be the actual calendar date of his resurrection. But he was born. Born of a woman. Born in the likeness of sinful flesh. Just like you and I. He lived. He learned. He struggled. He suffered. He pleased the Father. He was rejected by men. And he died and rose again. 
These are facts. This isn't something that's just, that's what Christians believe. Sadly, we live in a world where people like to think that, don't we? Well, that's what Christians believe. Well, is it we who believe that the sun rises and sets each day? Well, we believe that for a couple reasons. One, the scripture tells us that God ordered it that way before any man saw it. And then he put men here who saw it. And that's the way it always works. What God orders and what God declared by his word is exactly what men see. And the things of the incarnation of Christ, men saw it. Not just Jewish shepherds in the fields and those gathered, but God brought magi from the east who come not from Judaism, who aren't those who are followers of the Torah and the Pentateuch, were they? No, but God established in the sight of the world his unique son who he sent. And again, we remember the uniqueness of it because that son he was sent. These men came from the east asking, where is this king of the Jews? And then when they came and met him, the scripture reminds us they worshipped him. They worshipped what was seemingly at that time a helpless babe had no part in their culture, no place in their region's religion, and yet in the purposes of God, they came in recognition, there is the one. And the same thing we see at the death of Christ. There are those who are putting him to death, those Roman soldiers. And as he cries his last and says, into thy hands I commit my spirit and breathes and yields up his soul. What does the scripture tell us? There was an earthquake and the earth shook. Rocks were cracked in two. And the veil in the temple that was a solid and thick veil made of a singular piece was torn from top to bottom. Making a way and opening up the the, the place that was the Holy of Holies that no one had access to except the high priest and that once in a year to make atonement. But atonement was made. The door, the gate had been opened. The veil had been torn. Christ had accomplished it. And those men who were at the foot of the cross who themselves had no history in Judaism, had no rooting in the, in the scriptures, they looked upon these events and they looked at him and they said what? Surely this man was the son of God. And you think, yeah, God brought not only those who were Jew of the Jewish background and acquainted with the scripture to know it, those acquainted with the scripture could know it as he fulfilled those prophecy, prophecies. Those who simply existed in creation could see that he who through everything was created was crucified. And he was the son of God. It's not stories. It's not myths. It's not children's Sunday school material. It is absolute reality that we rest upon that we rejoice in brothers and sisters no 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 small thing and i want to consider a few thoughts from that this morning as we take up our suffering savior because it's important for us to recognize this christ as the eternal son of god as the scripture tells us in john 1 1 
in the beginning was the word. And that word is Jesus Christ who became flesh and dwelt among us. It tells us in verse 14. In the beginning was that word, was that Christ, was that son. And the word was with God. And the word was God. God the son. Eternal. Glorious. Perfect. Sovereign. Without weakness. Without failing. Without frailty of any kind. Took on human flesh. Took on our fragile fleshly circumstances. Can you imagine that? He to whom all creation is upheld by the word of his power. Would put himself in a place. Where he would be as a babe. Upheld by others. Uh, sometimes I don't think we understand the, the amount of what in theology is oft called the condescension of Christ. And maybe we don't like that term because that's coming down to the level of man. And we like to exalt the level of men. I don't mean to break your hearts this morning. But when God made us in the garden, you know what he formed us out of? The dust of the ground. You know, not diamonds. All right. It is the mercy of God and that he would enter his creation, come in the form of a servant. It's just astounding. And not only coming in the form of a servant and living with with some extraordinary experience and recognizable superiority. But the scripture reminds us in the beginning of Isaiah 53 that there would be nothing in what you would see in his flesh that would make him stand out. He wasn't the physically strongest and most he-man man you would ever see. He, he, wasn't, he didn't radiate some form of physical beauty and attractiveness. Where because of how he looked, people were, were drawn to him and taking second looks. That wasn't there. He took on the form of such simpleness. Such ordinariness. And not only that, in that circumstance, put himself in a place where he would even be maligned and mistreated by the very men whose existence his power holds together. Scripture says and tells us this, and our first point that we want to look at this morning is the scorn and the shame. In verses, we're going to take this a little bit out of order because I, I want to draw our attention to certain things as we build. In verse 4 through 6, it tells us this. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm. And not a man. Scorned by mankind. And despised by people. I mean just listen to that. As Christ came. He comes. And even looking back on the history. He's able to say this. Look at so many times in the past. Our fathers. Cried out to you. And you delivered them. You delivered them from their enemies. You delivered them from death. You delivered them from that suffering. You delivered them from that shame. 
Yet here he is, isn't he? He's on that cross. And is he going to be delivered from that death on that day? He's not. They, in a, in a real sense, uh, were not shamed because the God in whom they trusted, he came and delivered them. They will actually say to Jesus, if you are who you say you are, come down. If you really are the son of God, come down off of there. And he who had the power to come down off of there would what? Remain there, letting them shame him, saying words like, you can't prove who you are. Now, little did they know, three days later, it would be proved who he is in an even more powerful manner than if he had come down from that cross. Because he, he came forth from the grave. Victory over death in the grave. Just absolutely astounding. But here he is in a position of shame. And not a surprise, the scorn and shame. It tells us in Isaiah 53 that he grew up in verse 2 and 3. Before him, like a young plant, a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we would look on him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. One from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. I mean, here he is, the Savior. And he, even beyond that, when we even with our flesh, which is kind of where we are trapped, look upon Christ. What did he do wrong? What did he do to deserve this death? He went about declaring the truth of God. Everything that God would have him declare. The importance and necessity of repentance. The inward, not merely the outward. He served with faithfulness. He served with compassion. He taught with patience. He expressed love. He healed the, the, the lame, the blind, the sick. He raised the dead. What did he do that men should reject him, that men should despise him? And yet they did. And sometimes the mind is baffled that in all of that, he was silent. Like a sheep before his shearers. He's not continuing to bellow out as I, I might have tended to in a similar circumstances. You'll get yours. Someday you'll see. Right now, I'm going to give you one. But someday. That's how I think I probably would. Because he is always better than me. Always better than us. Silent. No threatening. Mercy. Patience. Remember, when he's first put on the cross, the scripture tells us here that these men are coming at him and speaking. And those two uh, prisoners who were being crucified right next to him on his right and on his left. It says they were also mocking him. They were also deriding him initially. But one of them we know sees something as time goes by. Doesn't he? 
And he, and he begins to recognize what's going on here. Because the grace of God has dawned upon his heart. And he now sees the one that moments ago he was mocking. Is the son of God. The hope. And only hope for man. And what does he begin to do? The voices he was previously joining, he now stands against. And he says, why are you doing this? We are rightly condemned, but he has done no wrong. And then he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus do? Again, I'm amazed and I pray that he would continue to make me more and more like him. Because Jesus' response is not, yeah, I heard what you said five minutes ago. Yeah. Nothing for you, buddy. It was, it, what was it? It was, this day, you will be with me in paradise. The quickness of mercy and forgiveness to one who has moments ago proven himself unworthy and unfit and undeserving. And yet Christ, with open heart and open arms, embraces and receives a sinner who was reviling but now repents. This is no small thing, is it? I mean, I think this is one who's suffering. The scripture reminds us that he went to the cross, it tells us in Hebrews, uh, not fearing the shame. Because in Deuteronomy it says, cursed is the one who hangs upon a tree. It was shameful in the eyes of people to be crucified. It, he was numbered among the wicked, the guilty, the evildoers. Such so shameful the things he had to bear from the mouths of men so shameful and yet he bore the scorn and shame. What a savior we have. And then uh, in the context of those verses that I read I do want to just point something out because it's it's an interesting little thing that uh, is oft not seen. And uh, I don't want to overplay it, but in verse chapter 22, verse 6, when he says the, the phrase there, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised. That, that word that he says there for worm is the word tolaat. Now that, that word is not the only word that the Hebrews have for worm. It is a very, very specific worm. And also the root of that word is the word for scarlet or crimson. Okay. And I want you to understand the, the picture that is interesting that is about this worm. Is th this is the kind of worm that when it would die. Now all of the dyes for crimson and, 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 and scarlet clothing that existed in those days. Was derived from this particular worm. But with this worm. When the mother was ready to give birth. What she would do is she would climb up a tree. And she would attach herself permanently to that tree. And she would not leave that tree. But she would die there. And in that worm's death. The, the, the scarlet that was inside the worm 
would come out. And that scarlet would stain the tree and it would cover the eggs that she has laid underneath her. And underneath that, 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 that worm, through that scarlet that was, that was emitted, th- those little eggs would be nourished and brought to life and come forth in strength. It's just an astounding little picture of the unique word that was chosen there. And and when we think of that, it's hard not to remember the scriptures say this in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 8 using that root word. Come now, let us reason together. 118, I think I said 8, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. And there was a picture that always was confusing to me. It's mentioned in Revelation chapter 7 verse 14. As those martyrs who have come out of the tribulation are worshiping before God. And it says this. I said to him, sir, uh, you know, as he was asking who these were. And he said to me, in Revelation seven fourteen, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and they are white they have washed them white in the blood of the lamb now if you try to trace that out logically does it work you know fill it up with lamb's blood and start your washing how's it going to come out i don't think a one of them is ever is going to come out white it's showing this this absolutely glorious picture of what Christ has done in his cross work in the shedding of his blood and his alone there is the remission of sin you know and so in all uh, sometimes the way that the scriptures weave pictures and words together just causes me to sit back with awe and think there is none like our God and then go further and saying there is no word like his word you know, that culture, that people in our culture would sometimes refer to this as the good book. Not even close. Good is not. It is a living word. It is a powerful word. It is an implanted word. It is a transforming word. It is a glorious word of God. And in God's eternal purpose, it is so inextricably linked to his son that his son is the word. So that all this that we have comes by his power and his glory and with his might for our instruction, our edification, our life. Amen. That's why it never gets old. Never gets weary. Uh, You know, I think God has given me the wonderful privilege now for over 25 years to be given to this daily. I, there's no, I'm not even close to burned out. You know, it, it, it's much more like the person who uh, tends to eat. If someone's been eating heavily for 25 years, do they get burned out on eating? No, what happens? Fact is, it's hard to diet because they have increased the appetite, right? And that's the way it is with God's word. The more you're given to it, the more and more the appetite just grows and grows and grows. And though we might want to diet with regard to the things of the flesh from time to time, no, no. 
And though overeating in some senses can have a negative effect on the flesh, regarding this, no, no. So engorge. Delight. Be a glutton for God's glorious word. It's okay. It's wonderful. Not only does it tell us about the scorn and the shame, it goes on and, and opens that up even further and speaks of the mockery and mistreatment, our second point. In verse 7 and 8, it says this, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and wag their head. You know, the, the, the wholeness of it, not just their words. They're making faces and taunting. You know, I don't know if it's like little children in all those kinds of ways. But they're doing all these kinds of petty things that mock him and would make him feel weak and bad or angry. And he doesn't succumb to shame. He doesn't succumb to anger. Look what it says. They said, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. I want you to note this. That, that, that's very strong language. Down in verse 12 and 13, it goes, he says this. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. Like raving and roaring lions. They just keep going. But listen, with regard to, to, to that, that is exactly what the scripture says in Matthew 27. The very words, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver. Matthew 27. I'm going to begin reading verse 39. Listen. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Again, that, you know, tisk, tisk, tisk. He's really nothing. We thought he was something, but look at that. I mean, if he was of God, would God be letting this happen to him? Shame on us. Shame on him for misleading us. Shame on everyone. Whew. And he's there knowing all of that. Further, they don't just think it. They say it. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God. Come down off the cross. So also the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. I mean, all the way along. Everyone there. They're coming. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Verse 42. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will now believe him. One by one, they keep saying, let him come down from the cross. Let him come down. You know, th there's a human part of me that, that thinks... Oh, that he would have come down and showed them. But then by the grace of God, there's another part of me that says, oh, that he didn't come down. Because that he did not come down meant my salvation and yours and our hope. Without that, where would we be? Goes on and says this. Listen to verse 43. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires him or if he delights in them, as it says in the psalm. In other words, what they were doing is they were determining and declaring that if he dies, it's because God does not like him. God is not pleased with him. It would prove he's not of God. That's hard. To hear, isn't it? Yes. And we know. And the disciples knew. And we'll consider in a moment. His whole life. 
my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He knew better and all were against him. Do you feel that at times? You hear people saying things and it begins to well and it begins to go. And you just feel like rising up and defending yourself, fighting for yourself and holding your ground. You know, sometimes it is necessary to graciously communicate those things. Sometimes maybe we just bite our tongue. We say, God sees and God knows my heart. And I know that no matter what I say to them right now, I'm not going to change their mind. They hate me. <laughs> you know, and the, and the moment I begin to defend myself, they'll say, see, there's the pride I was talking about. I can't win. You know, and so here is Jesus. <laughs> And he's hearing all of these things. Imagine hearing as he did in his life. Accusation that the work, great works of service to God he was doing were being done by the power of Beelzebub. Imagine being told in our eyes, here is the test of whether or not you're of God and he's pleased with you. And he knows he's not going to pass the human test. But he is going to satisfy divine wrath and righteousness. And so, so powerfully this unfolds. He trusts in his God. And this scorn and shame and this mockery and mistreatment move forward into the pain and the piercing. Not only that, which to a large extent is emotional torment. And depending on who you're dealing with, some people really don't like pain. You know, they, they, they don't like injections they don't like discomfort they others would much rather have physical pain than emotional pain because it just it just sets them off it's too hard I, I i tell you this brothers and sisters we most of us have all experienced some degree of both of those things whether it's uh, physical pain and things such as childbirth and kidney stones and, and other maladies. Or, or whether it's emotional pain and heartbreak and heartache and hurt from, from uh, those we loved. Or people spreading rumors. Whatever it is, we've, we've felt those things to some extent. None of us have come to bear the degree of emotional affliction. That was cast upon Christ. None of us have come close to the physical agony that was put upon Christ. None of us have sought to resist sin to the point of shedding blood. Have we? I mean, let us not pretend for a moment that we are like him in all respects. We long to be. But what he did and what he suffered, we see here the pain and the piercing. Look what it says in Psalm 22, verse 14 and following. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart melts like, is like wax is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to, to my jaw. You laid me in the dust. Dogs encompass me. Evildoers, they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. I mean, emotionally, physically, socially, in every way. It's at its absolute climax. The crucible 
of the crucifixion is fraught with a degree of affliction that we cannot attain to. And nor do we want to, do we? But listen to these words. And again, I, I don't want us to take too lightly. He did not deserve this. He had the power to end this. But in love, he endured this. And what the scripture says, oftentimes, for our sake. It wasn't random. It was purposeful. It was personal. He did it for us. He was pained for us. He pierced for us. We can't take that lightly. Oh, the way that the scriptures unfold that and remind us of the richness of how this is unpacked. It says this in Isaiah 53 verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. You see how personal that is? He was crushed for our iniquities. Not just for transgressions and for iniquities. For our transgressions. For our iniquities. It's so personal. And it says upon him was the chastisement. The punishment. The wrath. That what? Brought us peace. It's not simply he bore sin. And he bore trans transgression. And he brought peace. He bore our sin. He bore our transgression. He brought us peace. Those personal pronouns are sometimes the smallest words in the sentence. Us, our. But remove those and you don't see the power. The perfect personal power of what Christ did on the cross. He purchased us. He reconciled us. He was our propitiation. He was our sacrifice. The, the technical word that's often used is it was a vicarious sacrifice. It was substitutionary. What was for us. He was our substitute and took it in our place. And what should be to him eternal joy and bliss with his father is now in him Afforded to us. Ah. This, within, within the scale of this to really see it. We move from the pain and the piercing. To see the cries and the cup. I want us to, to see these two things really quickly. The cries and the cup. Now within this. Uh, there's an element that people sometimes misrepresent. Uh, one of the last things that Jesus says on the cross is what? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that has led to a host of, of human confusion surely along the way. Psalm 22 verse 1 opens up with that. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know, and, and some people push that language too far to where they somehow divide God from himself. And it gets too mysterious, need not and ought not be done that way. But also, we should not take it lightly. Remember, and it's stated in the form of a question. And I love that. Jesus, why hast thou forsaken me? For all eternity and throughout all of the days of his incarnation, like I said, at his baptism, 
The father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Towards the end, at the transfiguration, once again, just before he goes forward to receive the crucifixion, what does God say? My beloved son with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. The Gospel of John chapter 8 tells us that in all things he pleased the Father. Every moment of his existence, he experienced the absolute and appropriate favor and felicity of his Father. Right? What joyous communion and fellowship. But the scripture tells us this, on the cross... He became sin for us. Our sins were nailed to the cross. He bore our sin in his own body on the tree. And in that moment of what's oft called the divine transaction. Where our sins are reckoned to him. That allows and works out his righteousness being accounted or reckoned to us. As he took our sin upon him. The scripture reminds us that the wrath of God was poured out upon him. You understand that? Only favor. Only felicity. There would be a sense in which Christ would. The scriptures use. Now he never sinned. Don't mistake that. But it says he became sin for us. That we become the righteousness of God in him. And God would look upon the sin that is upon him on the cross. And pour out wrath in displeasure. We can't understand that event. And that experience, it has to remain a mystery, but a mystery of infinite magnitude and eternal consequences. Isn't it glorious? You know, uh, whatever the depth of that is, uh, one of the things that we do get in Scripture to kind of uh, help us al al along this way. The scriptures remind us of things like um, we are separated. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, Book of Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says this. But our iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins has hidden his face from you so that he's not near. Okay. Now just play this out in your own mind. They are separated from God. In some sense, right? But is God not omnipresent? Is he not also still near them? So there's always a mystery in our mind when it comes to God, right? But our sin, in a sense, separates us. The, the face of favor and kindness. Now he looks to the Father. And wrath and judgment are being poured upon, out upon him. I think... All that men said prior to that moment cannot compare with when the Father's wrath is poured out upon him. We'll never in this life grasp it. Maybe, maybe in eternity we'll have a greater glimpse of something of this. But I don't want us to take it lightly. Because again, within all of, uh, all of that, there is this cry. But listen, it's a question, right? My God, my God, why? Now, does Jesus not know why? He, he knows very well why. He says, for this reason I've come. As Peter takes out his sword. 
and starts the defense of himself. He says, stop, shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me? And the scriptures uh, lay this out very clearly and very often, this, uh, this cup that he was to drink that would be given for him. And, and so we understand that as this works out, the scriptures speak oftentimes about and tell us what the cup is. The cup is often a reference to God's wrath. For example, Isaiah chapter 51 verse 2, 22. Thus says the Lord your God. Your God who pleads the cause of Israel. Behold, I have taken away from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. See, what happened is this. Christ took and he drank for us that drink. I love the way that it's stated in prophecy in Psalm 75 verse 18. In the New English translation, it says this. Instead of the word dregs, it, it, it gives the real clear sense of it. For the Lord holds in his hand a cup full of foaming and mixed wine and spices and pours it out. Surely all the wicked of the earth, this is the wine fury of God's wrath, will slurp it up and drink it to its very last drop. That's the reality. For every sin that all men have committed, there is a wrath of God that is going to be poured out. And that wrath that is due to us was the cup that was given for Christ to drink. And brothers and sisters, he drank it. He drank every bit of our wrath down to the very last drop. As it tells us in, in Philippians, our, our Colossians, our sins, the certificate of debt, our record of debt was nailed to the cross. No more. That promise of the new covenant is what? He will remember our sins no more. What an amazing thing. And then just in closing. The end of this chapter, and you can read it on your own, speaks of the prophecies and the, pro and the posterity. Oh, it, they divided his garments, verse 18, and cast lots for them. And we see that happening right at the foot of the cross, right? But then it goes on to speak about though, how we know he is better lawgiver than Moses, a better priest than Aaron, a better Israel than Jacob, a better covenant than any that preceded him. He is alone the Savior. And all who then, by faith in Him, are by God's grace the descendants of Abraham, we hope in Him. All the ends of the earth will hear of Him. In all the families of the earth, indeed, from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people, we will be called out of these earthly kingdoms. And like Israel was under the old covenant. We will be his covenant people. By the blood of an eternal covenant. That will not change. Because of our union with Christ. We are that special people. That royal nation. That he has purposed to treasure. We are his offspring. By the grace of God. And so we just. We, we, we remember this. He rose and he reigns. And is at the right hand of God. Interceding for us. He's returning for his own. We rejoice. We recognize that in some mysterious. And remarkable sense. He was forsaken. 
so that we would be what? Eternally forgiven and never forsaken. We learn of our suffering Savior, the scorn and the shame, the mockery and mistreatment, the pain and the piercing, the cup and the cries. And he asks that question, why hast thou forsaken me? And thankfully, God's word would give us the answer. Why? That we might be forgiven. Why? That his people might be saved. Isaiah 53 says, he shall see and be satisfied. We are his and he is ours. Thank God for his promises and for his grace that have made us his posterity, his people by faith. Let's pray.